Welcome to Global IQ with The Economist. Today we'll be discussing Tweeting at Davos, the Power of Social Networking, with Martin Giles, U.S. Technology Correspondent for The Economist. I'm Jim Falk, President of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, and we are broadcasting live today from the World Affairs Councils of America office in Washington, D.C. Joining us are World Affairs Council members from Vermont, Kentucky, Michigan, Utah, and many other states. Global IQ is another benefit of your council membership. We also welcome, for the first time, clients of our sponsor, Texas Capital Bank, and members of Club Corps. Now, remember, you may ask questions throughout the broadcast, so please send them to us through the online form. And since we're talking about social media, be sure to tell us about your own experience and how social media is affecting your business and your daily life. Global IQ is sponsored by Texas Capital Bank, a Texas-based bank for businesses that think and act globally. For more information on the best business bank in Texas, visit TexasCapitalBank.com. Global IQ would also not be possible without the willingness of journalists from The Economist to participate and lend their expertise. And today, Martin Giles joins us from San Francisco. Since the beginning of 2008, he has been covering finance and business issues from the United States and is currently the paper's management correspondent and author of The Economist's special report, A World of Connections. Welcome, Martin. Hello, Jim. We're so glad you're joining us today. The growth in social networks has, has really been extraordinary. And indeed, as you note in your special report that will be coming out at the end of the month, Facebook is the second most popular site on the Internet after Google and most striking now with 350 million users, give or take a few million. If it were a nation, it would fall behind only China and India in population. And then just yesterday I read that American youth spend about seven hours online or playing video and then the article pointed out if you counted multitasking, uh, they were perhaps spending 11 hours out of 24 uh, on, on video or social networking. And then I saw that maybe on a positive note, social media now supplants pornography on the Internet. Um, what, could you take a few minutes and, and share with us some of the highlights of the special report and, and, and the major themes that you discovered uh, throughout your research? Uh, absolutely. Um, the report entitled A World of Connections, and uh, as you pointed out in your introduction, um, we are seeing a huge increase in the number of links that are being made via social networks between people across the world. Uh, you know, I think that statistic you cited about uh, um, Facebook, if it were a nation, being only behind China and India in population is, is so striking. I mean, it's come from nowhere. That uh, site was founded in 2004, uh, and in the space of five years, really, or five, six years, has, has absolutely um, rocketed in, uh, in its size and scale. And that caught my attention, and I thought it would be very interesting for our readers to, to hear more about how social networks operate, you know, how they're changing the way that people communicate with one another, how they work with one another, and how they play. And my argument in the special report is that, on balance, um, the changes that social networks are bringing to uh, the world are mostly for the good. Um, I look in particular at uh, four areas. One is the, the, the factors that dr have driven the growth of social networking, in particular some of the technological changes. Um, for example, you have uh, the fall, very rapidly falling price of computing power, which has made it possible for an outfit like Facebook to scale up to 350 million relatively cheaply. You have changes in user interfaces and privacy controls, which have made the world far more comfortable about revealing information, uh, individuals revealing information about themselves online, which was not the case, say, 10 years ago, when basically most social networks were, were sort of ghettos for geeks who could uh, work out how to operate the complex software that was needed to, to run them, and also felt comfortable swapping information online. So there's been a, a dramatic sea change in the technology, and that's one area that the, the special report focuses on. The second area it looks at is the, the sort of commercial commercialization of these networks. There's been a lot of, of hype around Facebook, Twitter, uh, and a number of national, large national networks, 
um, and a lot of skepticism as well about whether these networks can actually make money. Um, I argue in the report very firmly that I believe they can make money. Um, most of them aren't profitable at this point in time. They're still in the startup phase, but there are some very good reasons to think that in the future, at least some of them will be very, very profitable. So that's the second area that the report covers. The third area looks at how social networks are being used by businesses. And uh, I split that into small businesses and then, then larger ones. And on the small business front, I look in particular at how very, very small companies are using Twitter and Facebook to effectively get messages, marketing messages out to a very, very large marketplace incredibly cheaply. Um, you know, this is given, if you like, um, Mission Pies, which is a small little uh, business here in San Francisco that makes uh, fruit pies, fresh fruit pies, the same kind of marketing platform in many ways as a Procter & Gamble. You know, they can transmit to Facebook or to Twitter to a mass market in much the same way as a P&G can. And that has leveled the playing field for, for many small businesses in, in ways that were not possible before these networks came around. In larger businesses, there's quite a debate going on, and I imagine um, some of your listeners may have already seen these uh, debates happen within their own companies as to whether Twitter, Facebook, and these other social networks should be allowed in the workplace. Um, you know, many people have argued that they are time-wasting devices that people will spend their time chatting with their friends rather than working, and that therefore. Yeah, any kind of social networking activity should be kept out of the workplace. Um, for very reasons that I have to discuss later at, um, in the call, I think that's a mistake. And then finally, the report looks at the issues of privacy that have come up around social networks. Um, in December, Facebook made some changes to the privacy settings that it has on its site to make more information um, that people put on there visible to the wide world by default. And this has caused a very big debate as to whether these sites, you know, basically they are driven by economic considerations to continually erode privacy controls for individuals because it benefits them from a money-making perspective. And I do think that there is an issue and a risk there that the sites you know, are starting to, to realize it could be a very big public policy debate down the road. Very interesting. There's a lot for us to cover, and I also want to spend a bit of time talking about the impact uh, on governments and politics as, as well. One, one thing in, in this country, we tend to focus so much on Facebook, and I'm reminded that it's really you know a very new phenomenon now, just in its sixth year. And of course, Twitter and, and LinkedIn, I guess those are really the, the three big ones, and, and MySpace maybe falling behind somewhat. But Tell us, if you could, a bit more about some of the community sites that are making impact in the world, say in China or Russia or India. Are they following uh, pretty much the same structure, or, or, or how is it different? Um, it's interesting. Uh, let's, let's take India and Brazil, for example. Both of those countries use a site called Orkut. Uh, OKUT, okay, uh, okay, which is a, a Google-owned service. And uh, Google launched this a number of years ago, and it didn't really go anywhere in many countries, but for some reason it just proved to be hugely popular in India and Brazil. So those markets have, have adopted Orkut as their, their main social network, although Facebook is starting to make um, inroads into both India and Brazil. Uh, in Russia, you have a very popular site called Vkontakte, which is a local Russian language site that mimics Facebook in many ways, interestingly. And uh, in a country like France, you have uh, Skyrock, which is a, a very popular domestic site. So in most countries around the world, there tends to be a national, a large national player of some kind. Having said that, you know, we have seen Facebook make uh, you know, serious inroads into a number of different markets, although uh, the Great Firewall of China, which we can probably talk about a little later as China has been in the news recently, um, is, uh, is keeping Facebook out of China. It has very few users in that country. I think it has what you said, only about 14 or 15,000. The last time I looked, it was 14 to 15,000. It may have, may have dropped since then, actually. 
Well, does anything stop me from registering on a, uh, one of the Russian sites or the Chinese sites? As uh, you could register on uh, one of the Russian sites or one of the Chinese sites. Obviously, they adhere to, uh, well, particularly the Chinese site will adhere to Chinese uh, internet regulations, which is, um, I'm sure you and your listeners will have seen, are very, very strict. Um, Baidu Space and QQ are two very large Chinese sites that the Chinese government seems to have favoured over um, Facebook in its uh, in its management of internet operations, mm-hmm. and both of those sites are very very big in China, and so there are, in many ways China has the uh, the largest um, internet sites for networking domestically. Um, but they don't go beyond the Chinese borders. What what happened to MySpace, and why has Facebook become so dominant? And 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 do you think that there's something else on the horizon that may replace it? Or? Hmm. So that, that's a, that's a great question. I think um, if you think back in 2004 when Facebook was uh, was founded, you know MySpace was all the rage. Um, and for, many, for several years after that, MySpace continued to be uh, the number one site in the U.S. But then it suddenly faltered. It almost like went off a cliff, and its membership declined sort of gradually over time and, and continues to decline today. Uh, what happened is that I think uh, MySpace lost its focus on the essence of networking, which is really all about making it as simple and easy as possible for people to swap whatever they want to swap, whether it be videos, whether it be news, whether it be uh, pictures that they've taken from their holidays. MySpace, from its origins, is a sort of entertainment-focused site that lets people swap news or interests around music and film. It suddenly started to try to become all things to all people, and it put a lot of um, content on the site, like weather reports, job postings, and various other things, that basically cluttered it up and made it very confusing for people to to use. And social networkers tend to be fickle types. You know, they will leap if something doesn't really work for them. And I think that's what's been happening with MySpace now. It was bought by News Corp in uh, 2005, and recently they have changed the management there, and the management is actively trying to clean up the site and make it, you know, take it back to its roots as a place where people can swap content easily. Now, one of the things that I read that I thought was extremely interesting in your report was that social networking sites are, at some point, and maybe it's already happened, are going to replace email as the most common usage as a way for people to communicate. If you think about what what social networks are, really they are... Yeah, there are two things. Now, number one, they are an amazing uh, tool with which people can communicate with, we- with each other. You know, once you've set up your network of friends on, say, a Facebook or a, uh, a MySpace, you know, with a single post, you can send information out very, very easily to all of your network or indeed to subgroups of your network if you wish to just send information to your family as opposed to everybody. That's possible on Facebook. And I think that tool, that power of mass communication is starting to really drive the growth of these sites. And uh, Nielsen, which is a market research firm, found that in February of last year, uh, people were spending more time when they were online on social networking sites than on email. And that lead has been growing since then. Those those data are from, uh, from the U.S., but it's, apparently it is something that is uh, common across the across the globe. Mm-hmm. And you said in the introduction that uh, you're you're rather bullish that uh, social networks can can make money or the, for the companies. Um, tell us about the different business models because I understand that the advertising revenue has, fell last year, um, although usage went up. That's right. Um, well, advertising was a difficult market last year. And advertising, for most of the large sites like Facebook and like MySpace, advertising is the big revenue generator. Um, what happened was that overall online advertising fell, but the element that is devoted to uh, social networking sites actually rose. 
So even in a difficult market, a very difficult market, you saw social networks starting to take a greater share of online advertising spend. They still don't have anywhere near the kind of share that their audience would command in terms of the sheer numbers of the people that are on these sites. But I can see it heading that way. Um, so display advertising is clearly something that most of the big sites think that they can generate a large amount of money out of. And uh, last year, investors in Twitter valued the uh, service at about a billion dollars based on the belief that really it can and will in future be able to generate money from advertising and other sources. And there was a, a preference share investment in uh, Facebook, which actually valued that site at $10 billion. So that's some very, very big numbers being applied to, to those sites. There is skepticism that they will be able to achieve the kind of revenue streams that would justify those valuations. But I, I have seen evidence around that suggests that uh, there is a very good uh, reason to think that they will be able to achieve substantial revenue figures, at least some of them. And we'll be moving in a, in a few moments to the issue of privacy, but I guess really the big advantage for social networking is that advertisers can uh, target specific uh, markets. That's right. I mean, when you sign up to a social networking site, generally uh, in the sign-up process, there is a passage where you are asked whether you would agree to the site using data about you to target advertising at you. It's a very explicit you know, request as you sign up. And the site will then go to clients and say, listen, you know, we, unlike most other advertising vehicles, have the ability to very specifically target advertising at our users. We don't give information out to advertisers about our users. No personal data is shared, but it is aggregated and then sent out so that advertisers can see on an aggregate basis what the, the sort of audience that they're targeting, but individual information is kept private. Now, that differs from many internet sites where you are tracked, your use of sites is tracked without your knowledge through things like cookies and various other technological devices that allow sites to monitor what you're doing, your interests, and then serve up advertising to you. Those sites aren't explicitly making it clear that you are being tracked in this way, and that is causing substantial concern uh, among privacy activists who feel that uh, people should have a much clearer um, knowledge about what is being uh, monitored about their behavior online. Maybe you could share with our listeners how Sony Pictures uh, marketed uh, uh, some, of, some of their films. Yeah, and this was an interesting experiment that was conducted last summer um, on Facebook. Uh, the, um, the boss of Sony Pictures Entertainment, Michael Linton, is, is famous for having once said, you know, that nothing good in his view had come out of the internet, by which he was really talking about internet uh, piracy of, of films. You know, he felt that, that uh, there needs to be stronger controls on internet piracy. But he was, he's been a skeptic um, for a long while of, uh, of the impact of the internet on his industry. However, he agreed to a, an experiment on Facebook with three films. Um, and those films, basically, they ran a two-week TV promotion for these three titles. Um, and then it was The Ugly Truth, Julia and Julia, and District 9. So three films that were aimed at very different demographics. District 9 is for young men. Julia and Julia is more for the middle-aged uh, women category. I love and the film. The Truth, <laughs> Did I say something politically incorrect? No, I hope not. <laughs> I apologize if I did. I'm just uh, laying it out as it was laid out. That's right. And uh, then um, they ran these uh, uh, ads for two weeks on television, then monitored how much awareness there was among uh, the Facebook audience of these films. And then they ran basically a week of web ads on Facebook for these films. And at the end of that week, there was a significant increase in awareness of all three. So Mr. Linton concluded that 
social networks basically are radically changing the way that the marketing system or marketing landscape looks. And his argument is that what happens on Facebook and on MySpace and on other networks is a word of mouth phenomenon that is very, very powerful, i.e. Uh, as soon as somebody sees something that they're interested in, the sites enable that, them to pass that interest on to their friends and family extremely easily. So you have you know, a very powerful word of mouth effect that you don't get necessarily in other forms of advertising. Well, this is going to have a really significant impact, I suspect, on network television. I think it will. Um, you know, if you, it could be a very positive effect. I mean, network television is actively using many social network sites to run promos for for programming, and they're being very creative about the way in which they are they are positioning their programs. Um, you know, and you can find uh, executions where you, know, you you click on a, a, um, a trailer for for a series, and basically the they will give you three or four scenes in which data from your personal network um, is shown in various contexts within the uh, within the trailer. For example, um, you might be looking at a photo of a picture on a wall, and all of a sudden you see a picture of your your fiance or your wife or flashed up there. You know, for some people, that's very creepy, but for other people, it's incredibly powerful and effective. It's immersive. So you know, there's a lot of experimentation going on, and people see this you know, both as an opportunity and potentially as a threat in mm-hmm. some, some cases. Well, well that's a, a perfect segue into the subject of, of privacy. You know, one of the criticisms about social networking has, has been around this issue, uh, uh, not just for the individual but also the corporation. But, but I was curious, do you find that uh, in your research that different generations have a, a different perspective uh, on privacy as, as the young have grown up with this more than, say, some of us who are a bit older? Right. I think it, it's a really... Um, tricky question to answer in the sense that there is some evidence to suggest that young people are more comfortable with sharing information, more information publicly about themselves than older generations. Having said that, you know, there are various studies around, including one that was done a couple of years ago by the Pew uh, Internet uh, and American Life Project in Washington, which showed that uh, young people were actively using privacy controls on all of these sites to limit the amount of information that was publicly available. Um, I, I think they're very astute. I had one. Uh, I, I went to one uh, panel in uh, Silicon Valley where four teenagers were grilled by mercilessly by um, a bunch of venture capitalists who were very interested in finding out how they were using social networks. And one uh, of the panelists said, "Well, said, well what I'm doing is that I'm using a false name to put up a lot of stuff about me in my younger days. And then what I'm going to do when I graduate is from uh, from college, basically, I'm going to." put up a site that has my real name on it and has all of my written information up there <laughs> and I'm going to leave all of my legacy past behind so that no one can see it, which I thought was an interesting approach. But um, I think in general there is, uh, there is a difference, but I think it's wrong to think that the youth aren't interested in privacy. They're very aware of it and very skilled, in fact, in using the different settings on, on a site like Facebook, which gives you 65 different ways of limiting the amount of information that is visible to uh, to other people about yourself. But that's really been an evolution for Facebook, hasn't it? I mean, haven't they been somewhat compelled to change their policies? Well, it's interesting because there's a there's an inherent tension for all of these sites in in two ways. Um, first of all, you know, it's very important to get people onto these sites. Obviously, they want to grow very fast, so they need to reassure you that you're information is safe when it's on there, that it's not going to be revealed to people who you don't want it revealed to. Um, at the same time, if we all lock down a lot of our information uh, and it isn't publicly available, it isn't shared widely, then traffic and uh, money-making opportunities are limited. So you have this inherent tension between the desire to bring people on by reassuring them that their information is safe and the keenness to get people to share as much as possible because that's a great way to build traffic and, and build money. Um, 
So what you've seen, I think, over time is to begin with, there was a lot of uh, discussion about you know, how important these controls were, how robust they were. And then over time, there's been a playing down of privacy controls. And as I said, in December, there was a, a very big um, kerfuffle over Facebook's decision to make uh, public, more public, um, more information by default. Now, the site argues, and perhaps uh, there is uh, there is some um, justification for this, that people over time have become more comfortable with sharing some data about themselves more broadly. But it's, uh, you know, there's been a complaint to the Federal Trade Commission by several privacy groups who argue that Facebook has gone too far and that it needs to wind wind this back. And in the past, um, you know, the company has made other changes that have uh, have caused an outcry and it has, it has stepped back from them. So we'll be, it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. And, and who regulates organizations like this? And is it different, say, in the United States than in the EU, for instance? Well, it, it, uh, there's a difference in the United States and the EU, I think, towards um, attitudes towards privacy. Uh, in general, this is a, a very big generalization, but I, I think it has truth to it, and that is that in general, in America, there is greater willingness to uh, be open with information than in some countries in Europe. And again, it, it differs across Europe as well. Um, for example, Germany has very strict data protection controls um, and is, is looking very carefully at what Facebook and other sites have, uh, have been doing. You know, there's a big debate going on among data privacy regulators in Europe as to exactly what kind of regulation should be applied to these sites. Um, in the U.S., it's more uh, the Federal Trade Commission tends to be the body that um, people turn to when there are concerns about how data is being used on social networks. Let's, let's talk about the corporate environment. Uh, corporations, I suspect, are, are worried about the time that employees might be idling away when they should have their nose to the corporate grindstone, and, and security has to be a concern. Um, does it vary by industry? And, and give us some examples. Yes, I, I think it, it does vary by industry. I mean, for example, if you are a bank, um, you know, you have specific concerns. You're in a very reg you know, highly regulated industry. Uh, information, the management of information is, is a very important part of your, A, your competitive advantage, but B, also the regulatory environment. So to allow your employees to you know, access social networks during the workday uh, to send out information about what they are working on that can be seen by anybody it is a very, very sensitive and risky thing to do. So it, would, it makes sense for companies like banks or pharmaceutical companies that are also in very heavily regulated industries to be very circumspect about the use of public social networks. And it, not just those industries, too. I mean, broadly speaking, you know, most companies are nervous, and I think rightly so, about using public networks because you know, anything that is put up on them, in theory, can be seen very, very widely. Now, there is there are some companies, like a Zappos, which is, uh, belongs to Amazon.com, is a shoe retailer, that encourages all of its employees, including the CEO, to Twitter about everything they are doing. Their argument is, we want to be as transparent and uh, put a human face on the business, and we think this is the way of the future. Now, if you're selling shoes, it's probably a great deal easier to do that than if you're selling financial products or, or, or drugs. So, you know, it is different attitudes in different industries. Well, of course, there's been a lot of discussion recently in this country about how to, how to connect the dots among the uh, different entities that are involved in the intelligence business. Um, isn't there something called A-Space now, and, and how does that work? Yes, um, there is. There's a, a, a project that has been put in place um, to create effectively a Facebook for spies, 
which is uh, an internal network, so one that's not open to, to the web, obviously, but to bring together analysts from different intelligence agencies to create a profile of each of these analysts online and to encourage them to you know, use this to contact other analysts around the, the intelligence community and to share information. Now, you know, given what happened recently with the attempted uh, um, you know, bombing of uh, an American airliner, coming in uh, to Detroit, I think it's, you know, it's, perhaps there's even more sharing that needs to, to happen, but I think it's very encouraging that there are attempts to break down the silos um, using a kind of social networking technology, and that technology, that kind of information sharing can be very important within companies, not just within the intelligence community. Now, one thing that I'm really not clear about is we've talked about the privacy controls for the, the major companies, the, the major social networks. But what about the third-party applications? When you know Facebook, someone invites me to participate in a game or join some cause. Where is that information going? Yeah, um, that information. A lot of information is being shared with third-party developers. Um, so, for example, if you join um, a game. Uh, on Facebook and you are basically, that, that game can get access to your friend network and find out who else is within that network. And there are concerns that basically information is being shared very broadly with, um, with third party developers. Now, what happened was Canada's privacy um, commissioner basically called Facebook out on this last year and Facebook looked at its policy and said, you know, you're absolutely right, you know, we should be um, restricting the way in which third party developers can get access to, to this information and we are going to change our policies on this across the world so that everybody knows what information is being shared with these third-party developers. Now, that's Facebook. There are a lot of other businesses, a lot of other networks that are uh, sharing information with third-party developers in ways that um, you know, still are probably unregulated or at least not controlled as, as tightly as Facebook is now. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's a big issue, but it's also a, a commercial issue because, again, if you restrict the sharing of information with these third-party developers, then there may be less third-party development. There may be less traffic on the site, therefore there's less money. So it is a, a sensitive area and a delicate balancing act for all of these sites to, to pull off. It's really a catch-22 on all this. Very interesting. I'd like for a little bit to switch over and talk about social networking and, and politics and also remind our listeners that all they need to do to ask a question is just uh, email it to us uh, from, the, from the auditorium and we'll try to get to as many of them as, as, as we can. Um, social media is really about giving the customer or constituent uh, a voice. Um, how are governments uh, using social media? I think governments are using social media very carefully at the moment. I mean, it's still early days in terms of applying these networks um, broadly. Where you're seeing them being used mainly is in in election campaigns. I mean, the the, the uh, presidential election campaign here in the U.S. is a very good example of how. Um, social networks can be incredibly powerful. I mean, MyBarackObama.com, which was Barack Obama's own social network, was used extensively to create a grassroots support for him from scratch. And he used both Facebook and Twitter very effectively to, to drum up support early on in his campaign and then all the way through to the election. And, uh, and still using it quite quite effectively, I assume. And, and still using it, I'd say somewhat less effectively right now, but um, you know, still using it, absolutely. And then, of course, in Iran, that's been a, a Twitter played a, a huge role in Iran, didn't it, in the, in, during the summer? That's right. I think what you're seeing in authoritarian regimes, and, and I obviously include Iran in that, is use of social networks by opposition groups to try and circumvent 
you know, national controls on media. And what happened last summer was that the Iranian government tried to suppress local media coverage of the elections that were taking place and found that although that was very effective, um, opposition groups had turned to Twitter to, to send out messages to one another and to the world. And indeed, you know, Twitter was planning to have some downtime, some downtime to work on its technology during that period and was asked, um, I believe, by the State Department to try and keep its uh, activities, uh, try and keep its network up and running for the period because there was, you know, this use was, uh, was becoming very apparent and uh, it was very powerful. I want to be sure we talk about Haiti in a few minutes, but Chris yeah. from Dallas asks, is there a danger that social networking tools might be used anonymously by governments as a tool to spread disinformation against individuals, groups, or positions taken by such individuals or groups? Thank you, Chris, for that question. Uh, it, it's a very good question, and the answer is yes, there is definitely a danger um, that that can happen. Uh, you know, most networks, it's very difficult to tell whether somebody is, is a genuine or not in terms of the profile that's put up there and the information that is disseminated. So that is a risk. You know, the flip side of that, though, is that you know, in some ways, uh, information can be sent out by people who were, you know, who would otherwise suffer persecution you know, if their true identities were known. So it works both ways. But what you're starting to see, because um, this, this is an issue also for companies, you know, there have been cases where um, information has been sent out by uh, somebody using a company name who wasn't actually a company representative. And what we're seeing now is a sort of move towards creating some kind of verification process. Uh, Twitter is looking at this very carefully, you know, so that a company can signal that it is the genuine company that you are following a Ford or a Procter and Gamble, and you know because of this verification process that it is actually Ford or Procter and Gamble. Could governments use that too? Yes. Um, will there still be disinformation sent out over these networks? Absolutely, just as there is disinformation sent out over the Internet in general. So some way you would know that, for instance, it was the Genuine Economist site or, or, or the World Affairs Council? Indeed. Let, let's move and talk uh, for a minute about Haiti. I read just this morning it was well, it was ten million dollars a few days ago, and now I think uh, over twenty million dollars has been raised in in, in ten ten dollar increments for for Haiti. Um, it's really quite phenomenal. We, as, as some people know, we had a member of our staff that was in Haiti, and the first thing she did was text her her, her dad that she was safe and needed assistance. Right. I think you know, it is a very, very powerful element of, of social networks, the ability to create um, very quickly a dissemination of information about what's happening in a particular disaster site. Um, you know, Twitter was used extensively um, after the earthquake, um, and uh, a lot of information was shared very, very quickly from the ground. So you get a greater awareness um, a greater immediacy of awareness of what's going on in these natural disaster areas, assuming the connections are still up to be able to get information out across a, a network like Twitter. And then you can very quickly uh, form groups and send out information uh, to your friends saying, you know, I want to, f to create uh, a, a drive to raise money for people in Haiti uh, to help. And that is something that you know, this world of connections that social networks have created is, was not possible before. I mean, it just took greater time. And there is a, a service called Causes, um, which is one of the millions of applications that have been developed for, for social networks that allows you very simply to create a sort of drive, uh, uh, an A drive online using all of your social networking contacts in a very, very smooth and very simple way. And it's those kind of applications that are really, I think, having a big impact on, on philanthropy, uh, which is another aspect that we, we can talk at a greater length. Well, Kathy has asked, is Haiti the first place where social media has been used in a disaster situation? And she adds, I think it really made a difference and saved lives. 
No, I mean, there have been a number, I, I, I agree with that, you're absolutely right, it has made a difference and, and saved lives, uh, but it has been used extensively in other places, um, you know, during the, the tsunami um, in Asia that, uh, that hit a few years ago, Twitter was really the main um, vehicle uh, initially for getting information out about what was happening um, in Bandar Aceh and various other places and the, the extent of the damage and the destruction and the suffering of the population there. You know, really Twitter um, brought that out very, very quickly. Um, one of the things that you talk about in your article a bit is how countries may block some of the social networks, and of course we'll, we'll talk about China and, and Google in a moment, but, or, or maybe this is a good time to talk about what you call the cute kitty syndrome. Could you explain that to our listeners? Cute kitty syndrome, yes. Um, when it, it comes back to this issue of how authoritarian governments might deal with um, social networking, you know, opposition groups have been looking at all, for a while uh, for media through which they can communicate their views, communicate with one another. And often what happens is you see a social network become extremely popular within a country that's, and it's used a lot for basically sending out in, you know, photos, pictures of your cats, pictures of your pets, other pets, pictures of your kids, pictures of your uh, extended family, and it becomes a very, very valuable tool for communicating with your friend networks. And the more valuable it becomes and the more widespread it becomes, those two kitties you know, are, are just so popular that it is very hard for a government to make the decision to shut down, or it becomes harder for a government to make a decision to shut down or block that network because it would be extremely unpopular because it's become ingrained in in society. So yeah, a, a number of uh, of governments you know, are looking at how they might control these these new media, but they have have to tread relatively carefully, um, which is why it's so interesting to see what is happening in China right now. And, and, and tell us more where it stands now. I saw that Secretary Clinton just gave uh, a speech early this morning at the New Zim here um, and, and really challenged China and to, to lift some of the censorship. Yes. Um, it, it's interesting to see um, Secretary Clinton's wording. You know, I think she was very robust in her criticism of, of what's been happening with Google. Of course, um, whether China has been very silent on what it thinks has happened and why it thinks it's happened. Um, you know, was there some kind of renegade group trying to get access to, to Google's uh, information or was there some kind of state-sponsored effort? Uh, it's remarkably said nothing about that. Um, which makes one wonder what the, the true uh, origins of these attacks were. And we also saw yesterday there was some concern in India that um, the Defence Ministry's uh, computers had been penetrated by hackers and the data linked seemed to take um, the trail back to China as well. So. Yeah, I think Secretary Clinton's words were much stronger today because this is becoming something that isn't just a U.S. phenomenon. It is becoming a global issue, and the U.S. needs to take a very robust stand on protecting um, people's privacy and people's uh, right to, to have that information kept private, but also the commercial interest of a very, very important um, company. Now, uh, there have been some discussion that Google was anyway thinking of moving back from China because it wasn't able to sort of penetrate the market in the way that it had hoped. It wasn't making a lot of money there and that this is some kind of smoke screen behind which the company can you know, uh, elegantly withdraw. Um, you know, that's, that's a thesis that's been put forward. I'm not you know, 100% convinced by that. I think that there is definitely some concern about this, you know, what's becoming a pervasive activity in terms of attacks on various internet sites coming out of China. Well, Secretary Clinton was really very forceful this morning. She said the U.S. will candidly and consistently address its differences with China over internet freedom. And then she also used the phrase, a new information curtain is descending over much of the world. Yes. 
And I, I think that is, the, as I said before, you know, it's a, a re- reflection of the pervasiveness now of these kind of attacks, and they don't just occur out of China. Uh, there has been concern in Eastern Europe that Russia, in particular, um, has been mounting cyber attacks in various uh, in various other countries. Yeah, so there is a growing trend towards using the internet as a as a tool of influence and a tool of in- intelligence gathering and potentially disruption um, that I think has you know, only become evident over the last 12 months or so. And I think the, the U.S. is absolutely right to be as robust as possible in its language um, towards China and indeed towards other countries who may consider using this uh, um, channel as a tool of uh, influence or a tool of uh, attack. Still a bit more on this. Um, Tom Friedman wrote, as only he would, if China forces out Google, I'd like to short the Chinese Communist Party. (laughs) And uh, then he makes reference to John Hegel, who I understand lives in your neck of the woods. And it gets back to a little bit what you were saying about the, the world is flat and how companies can engage people outside of their companies on, on, on projects. Can, can you tell us more about how some companies have effectively reached out beyond their, their corporate environment to, to work on projects and so forth? Um, yeah, I, I think when beyond the corporate environment is, is it's still in its early days. Yeah, what you're seeing is uh, an opportunity in the likes of with the likes of Facebook and Twitter for companies to effectively use these sites as market research tools. So in many ways, it's, it's a sort of incredible um, market research group that allows you to access potentially millions of, of, uh, of customers and ask them and get feedback from them uh, as to products that you're thinking of developing, perhaps from your suppliers to get information about what they are doing and how that might feed into your plans. Um, so you see companies like Starbucks and Dell, which have many millions of followers of their Facebook pages, and they are using those pages basically to research uh, ideas, to solicit ideas from um, their their loyal customers. Uh, you even have some companies, there's a, a wonderful company called Sprinkles, um, which if you haven't tried their, their cakes and their confectionery... I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I have. You're <laughs> <laughs> right, it's quite good. <laughs> yeah, they're very, very good. Um, you know, Sprinkles has almost uh, uh, 90,000 followers on Facebook, and what it does is it publishes a secret password, not so secret because it goes on its page. But and then you rush to the store to get your free cupcake. You, if you are one of the first people to go into the store and whisper that password to the person behind the counter, you get a free cake that day. Wonderful. So very, very creative uses of the media, you know, um, appearing. I just want to mention that Hal from the uh, city of Plano, Texas, uh, when we were talking about uh, uh, security and how you know that you were really engaged with a a trusted site, he says, we posted links to our .gov website to ensure that users know it is our official site. Yes, I I think this issue, it is a big issue. Um, and the more you can do as a company or an organization to you know, give users, potential users, the information that would allow them to conclude this is you, this really is you, the better. As I said, I think it's still very difficult because there is no kind of formal certification process, but that is going to, to appear more broadly, I think, over the next year or so. Well, we've run into a problem with it with our council in, in Dallas-Fort Worth that there's a LinkedIn site called the DFW uh, World Affairs Council, and there's about 160 members, but we are unable to really uh, have control over it, and, and, and um, it, it doesn't even represent what we do. And uh, we've been talking with LinkedIn, so there, there are challenges to all of this, indeed. There are. There are. And I, I, but I, I don't think this is specifically true just of social networks. You know, this is an issue for the Internet as a whole. 
you know, even before social networks came to the prominence that they have today, you know, there were issues around web registrations, you know, who owns what address and the rights to it, cyber squatters. So it, it, it's an, a problem for the broader web, if you like, but social networks, because they are so intimate and there is so much information about individuals and about companies available through these networks, you know, they are paying, I know, a great deal of attention to it and are, are thinking of ways in which they can uh, reassure people as to the genuineness of the information that they're consuming. We have about another 10 minutes, and I want to remind our listeners that we still have time to take some of your questions. And we have one here from Clinton, and it gets back to the business environment and marketing. He says, the biggest challenge enterprises face with social media is measuring its penetration impact. Friends list simply aren't enough as businesses end up with friends to watch them from a competitive perspective. How do you recommend an organization try to capture real, measurable data on how effective social networks are for the company? Yeah, Clinton um, raised this a very, very interesting question and one that I think that the industry itself is still grappling with. Um, I, in my research, I spoke with uh, with Facebook about this because clearly uh, they have been trying to find ways in which they can demonstrate the efficacy of the money that is spent on their site. And uh, one thing that they are doing is producing a series of benchmarks, uh, measurable benchmarks with uh, Nielsen, that market research firm that I mentioned earlier, um, that they are going to be rolling out uh, over coming months that would allow a company to assess at the beginning, as I said, the sort of awareness of its brand among the audience that Facebook gathers, and then after its campaign or advertising has run, will measure again the impact that that campaign has had on awareness and be able to very quickly produce a result that says, here's the difference that's been made. Here is the impact that your marketing dollars have had. Um, but it is still early days, and you know, in many ways, the social networking world is still behind the world of television or the world of newspapers and magazines in having very clear and easy-to-use benchmarks for assessing the impact that, uh, that marketing dollars are having. But I do believe that that will change relatively fast over the next 12 to 18 months. So my advice would be we try and find those benchmarks um, as they come out and look for them and argue with uh, potential sites you're interested in using that they should be adopting these benchmarks because it's in their benefit and it's in the benefit of the of the marketer. Very, very interesting. Uh, Frank asks us, and we're going back to China, there have been reports of vigilante groups forming on social networking sites in China to deal with corrupt officials. Uh, are you aware of this and has this been seen elsewhere? I am aware of it. I don't know if it's been seen elsewhere. Um, and I, I think, it, you know, again, it comes back to what I was saying about um, you know, the, the, the cute kitty syndrome, which uh, it, it, these sites can be very, very powerful ways in which uh, opposition to a, uh, a corrupt regime can manifest itself. Um, Right now, the uh, the sites are growing so fast and evolving so quickly that it's quite difficult for governments to to control them as easily as they can, say, um, a, a, a Google from outside. So I'm talking about the internal sites. They're growing very, very fast and very quickly. And so there is a window of opportunity for groups to use them, I think, to get their messages out. And you know, inevitably, there will be some form of crackdown. And, you know, Google's the sort of first sign in China of what's happening. It's quite conceivable that that, uh, you know, that uh, crackdown will go further and faster inside if um, uh, opposition you know, start using domestic sites because they can't use Google anymore or, or worry about using Google or other um, non-Chinese sites. On a lighter note, now you can tease us because I understand that you were at the Las Vegas uh, Technology Conference. Um, tell, tell us what you saw. Well, I saw a great deal of new um, technology, which I think is going to be uh, fabulous for everybody who's interested in consuming content like The Economist uh, and like the content that the World Affairs Council produces um, that 
you, know, you can get these new e-readers and these new tablet-style computing devices that are appearing uh, that will allow you to consume media on the go in ways which are just not possible at the moment over a laptop or even a netbook. Um, it's very exciting. You see very thin screens, some plastic screens, which have incredible readability, but are seven inches to ten inches large. So you could put them in, in a briefcase, you could pop them in your backpack, uh, and at the same time they have not only the ability to allow you to read text um, at length and at ease on your eyes, because the quality of the ink, the e-ink, is amazing now, but also to bring in multimedia um, to consume video, uh, to consume audio, all through the same kind of device. And um, you know, the entire population of Silicon Valley is is uh, waiting with bated breath for next week's uh, Apple announcement. On Wednesday, Apple is uh, rumored to be launching a tablet-style computing device of its own, which may uh, have a greater, if not greater, an impact than the iPhone has had on mobile um, telecom. So they didn't bring that to the conference? You haven't seen it yet? I haven't seen it yet. No, I've been trying to see it, but uh, Apple has been keeping it very carefully under wraps. Now, um, everybody's talking still about smartphones, and I, I guess it's predicted there's going to be over a billion devices in a, in a few years. Um, does that mean that if I buy a pair of shoes, that they're going to that um, Nike's going to know right away that I did, and then they'll call me, and they, all my friends will know, or what, well, what's going to happen? Well, I, I I do think that smartphones and, and mobile phones in general are the future of, of social networking. Um, you, as these these phones become more ubiquitous. Uh, you are going to have a situation where it will be possible, assuming you so desire, for your location to be tracked wherever you are, for your friends through your social network to be alerted to wherever you are, um, and for, uh, therefore, serendipitous meetings to occur on a much greater um, uh, frequency than they do right now. And in some parts of the world, particularly in Asia, where very fast and cheap mobile broadband services are already available, you, some sites have seen a big shift in the way that people access um, social networks away from PCs and onto mobile phones. And so mobile phones are the future of social networking here in the developed world, but they are also, I believe, the, the future of social networking in emerging countries. Um, you know, companies like Sembu's in Kenya, which builds itself as East Africa's first, first mobile social network, and Mixit in, in South Africa, they're, they're gearing up to connect millions of people to social networks through phones. And because phones are far more prevalent in emerging markets, uh, in some, most emerging markets, than fixed-line broadband, um, they are more likely to be the vehicles that bring millions of people, additional people, to the social world of social networking. But then you can look beyond that, and I see a day where what I call a, a socialized state will emerge, and by that I don't mean we're all going to be embracing socialism. What I mean is that we are going to see social networking or social networking capabilities embedded in a whole range of different devices. Um, so you mentioned, yes, your shoes. When you purchase a pair of sneakers at a shoe store, if you really like them and you want to tell your friends about them, there may be some um, terminal available that you can immediately signal out to your uh, uh, to your network that you bought these, or you could just take a photo of them with your mobile phone and click, <laughs> and it will be shared to all of your Facebook sites, and they'll say, Jim Falk has the smartest pair of sneakers in Texas. As long as I'm holding The Economist next to it. As long as you're holding The Economist next to it. John uh, asked, I, I think, a very good question for us to conclude with, as, as Haiti is on our minds, and he says, even before the advent of social media, most of us had a short attention span. While social media does a great job of drawing attention to issues or disasters immediately, our attention is held only until the next event or celebrity misstep. Soon attention on Haiti will fade away. Is there a way that social media can hold our attention longer? And I saw another article about that today, I believe, in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, that that is you know, a, a, a real concern. 
Mm. I, I, it, it's, it's a very, very big concern. At the same time, uh, you know, first of all, let's, let's be very clear. I mean, you know, these networks have been hugely useful in situations like Haiti, and I, you know, I think it's in, amazingly impressive to see the response that's come from America and other nations very quickly to uh, to the tragedy, that's the personal tragedies that are happening in that in that country. Um, in terms of immediacy and then lack of uh, well, it's basically short attention span that's a charge that's long been leveled at the internet as, again in general at the web it's a place where people go to snap to absorb short pieces of information as opposed to you know spend long hours surfing pages and reading on the web I actually think two things will happen number one there will still be the stacking. You know, the internet is definitely made for rapid absorption of chunks of information and not for extended um, surfing. However, with the advent of these new devices that I was referring to earlier, the ability to absorb information on the go as opposed to just in front of your um, your PC screen at home or in the office is going to make it for easier for people to continue to absorb content wherever they are. So you could see an extension of access and therefore perhaps longer reading time, longer absorption of information. And let's not forget, one of the things that the Internet does also incredibly well is curating. It brings you links, information, access to depth, data, in ways that a printed product or any other kind of, of media right now cannot do. You know, one of the things we have done extensively on Economist.com is to add you know, extra information and data and useful links to aid our readers to get a deeper and broader understanding of the issues that um, the world faces, the very complex issues that the world faces. So I, I don't share a sort of um, feeling of, of desperation here that, that we're all being driven to, to short-termism. I actually think that, yes, the web does encourage brief absorption of information, but it can also be a hugely powerful tool for deepening our understanding of what's going on in the world. Well, I thank you very much, Martin. We, I'm sorry that we couldn't get to all of the questions. And, Martin, if I may, I may forward these to you and ask if you wouldn't mind just giving a brief reply to some of our members from across the country who have asked I a few questions. Um, we're, we're always grateful to your colleagues and especially to you today. Um, it, we, we really just touched on the surface of the special report that's coming out on January 30th. And uh, I want to remind all of our listeners, if you're not already a subscriber to The Economist, please go today to economist.com to start your subscription. Global IQ is a presentation of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth in association with The Economist. And today's broadcast was generously supported by Texas Capital Bank, and I want to thank the World Affairs Council of America for allowing us to have our first program in 2010 here at the headquarters of the World Affairs Councils of America. Please stay tuned for more information from your councils regarding our next audio cast. And remember, together, The Economist and the World Affairs Councils of America put you on top of the world.